So I uh, appreciate y'all's patience uh, with that and uh, look forward to getting into Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, it's on your page, but if you want to turn in, in Scripture to Luke chapter 14, it will also be on the screen. <clears throat> for the last, I don't know if you've noticed it, but for the last, yes, recording is in progress. Um, for the last few weeks, um, Something that Sam has preached on has ended up in the message here, and that's uh, the Holy Spirit doing a work that is not, I don't know specifically where he's going, but he he talked a little bit today about what we're going to be uh, talking about in Luke chapter 14 specifically, pick it up in verse 25. And there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them, if any man come to me. And hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, his own life and his own life also. He cannot be my disciple. And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? And lest haply, after he hath laid the foundation and is not able to finish it, all that behold it began to mock him saying this man began to build and was not able to finish or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000 or else while the other is yet a great way off sendeth an ambassage um, and desireth conditions of peace and so likewise whosoever be a uh, he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath cannot be my disciple. And I'm, I'm, I always try to be very honest and transparent with you all. <clears throat> As I have, have grown in, in my walk with the Lord, I have struggled with these passages, not with understanding them, but with the implications of what they mean. And honestly there, I can remember two times in particular uh, as I've, as I've, you know, I would say they were years ago, just by time, uh, that when these passages came up, I, I don't want to say I spiritually rolled my eyes, but I was just like, oh, Lord, kind of thing, really. And so, if you're in that same spot today, I, I pray for you. I, you know, it is not an easy decision. This, this concept, and we're going to go through it today. And these are poignant questions of Jesus. They are very, very poignant questions, and we're just going to have to, we're going to have to deal with it. It's in Scripture, and we're going to have to deal with it. So we're going to talk about counting the cost and determining if you're able, and we have to know the audience, who Jesus is talking to, and, and what are you willing to give up. We're going to talk about counting the cost versus numbering the people, <clears throat> and that's a little bit of a different, uh, different concept, and we want, to, we want to address that, and how to determine if you are, again, able so series point number 13, again, again our study, our, our, our point that is about studying scripture is you need to know the audience. You need to know the audience. And in this verse, or the, this passage rather, in verse 25, and there, went a great mul- and there went great multitudes with him, and he turned and said unto them. Jesus is talking to multitudes. He's not talking to his 12. He's not talking maybe to the 100 or 50 or so that are, are kind of secondary disciples. He's not talking to the three. He's not talking to one person in particular. He's talking to multitudes, and those words mean something. They are important. There are times when Jesus spoke to different audiences 
uh, and there on I think on your handout, the Pharisees and Sadducees are bolded. It was from this copy. There's nothing particular particularly important about that. But just notice that sometimes in Matthew like three seven, he's talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees. Matthew 9.37, he saith unto his disciples. And Matthew 6.23, to Peter and Luke, James and John. He's, when, he, when his disciples saw he turned and rebuked them, James and John. In Matthew 8, he interacts with the centurion. And then he turns to them that followed him. And then he turns back to the centurion. So who Jesus is talking to is relevant. Okay, We can't ignore it. We can't take the things that are applied to one group of people and or directed to one group of people and apply them to the other without some spiritual principles or things in other places in Scripture supporting that. Like that kind of like it's not fair if I say to my wife I love you, it's not the same as if I tell Desmond I love him. Like I I do love him, <laughs> but it's different, right? It should be different, right? And if somebody takes the way I communicate with my wife and tries to apply it to the conversation I have with Des, that's a problem, okay? So the not all things are written to you, but all things are written for you. You can learn from them, okay? So in this case, he is talking to the multitudes, Okay? Uh, for some reason, I, I'm, I'm still learning the, the... There we go. So the multitudes. So we're going to hit these fairly quickly. He had compassion. Jesus had compassion on the multitudes. Notice in Matthew 9, 36. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. So Jesus is all down with loving the multitudes. Okay? He's down with it. And and I'm I'm laying... Excuse me, I'm laying this foundation because it's not always going to be quite like this in, in this as we as we look at this, okay? He had compassion on them. He even healed the multitudes in Matthew 12. <clears throat> excuse me, Matthew 12 and verse 15. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from thence, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. He was good with healing the multitudes. He was good with having compassion. He was even good directing them. In Matthew 14 and verse 19, he commanded the multitudes to sit down in the grass. Why? Ultimately to be fed. So he directed. So I went to a course a few years ago uh, that work put on about different styles of leadership. And it was a it was completely secular. It was completely business. But I found that the best leaders are leaders that can know their audience and can lead differently in different situations. I mean, if I was Andy Reid today and I stood up and I, before, the, before the chiefs and I said, you know, guys, I, I, I really feel like you can do this. I really, I feel, like, I feel like you've got it in you. You know, I'm here for you. Just let me know how I can help you. Probably is not going to help the men going out to charge the football field, right? There's a style of leadership that should be, I guess, portrayed in that situation, right? There's times when we're in staff meeting where Sam is com- is very empathetic. Very, oh, man, that must have been really hard for you to go through. I'm sorry you're dealing with it. Let's work through how to deal with that, 
or even in the pastor's meetings that I've been starting to go through. He's very, sometimes very empathetic. And then there's other times he's like, you know what? We're going to make sure the closet that has the cleaning supplies in it is locked so a kid doesn't drink it. (laughs) Like, does that make him not empathetic? No. Like there's times where the audience and the content matter and you handle yourself different. That's not inconsistent. That's actually consistency. Okay. So he directed them. There were times Jesus looked at him and said, sit down. And that's okay. That's okay. There's times when Jesus needs to look at, you know, kind of kick us on the proverbial backside and tell us exactly what to do. There's times when he, and what did I do with, okay. And there's times when he proved them. Notice, notice, and great multitudes were gathered together unto him so that he went out into a ship and sat and the whole multitude stood on the shore and he spake many things unto them in parables. We talked about parables last week and jumped down a little bit in the passage and the disciples came and said unto him, why speakest unto them in parables? Like, why aren't you teaching them directly? Just tell them what they need to know. He answered and said unto them, because it is given to you, disciples, to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. And I would argue, yet, <laughs> right? Maybe, maybe some of them are going to move to the phase of discipleship where they're no longer just following and liking this idea of a Jesus that can heal them and feed them and take care of their needs, but they're really all in. I would argue that's the point at which they could understand and they would be willing to receive some of the more hard things that happen spiritually. So he proves the multitude. He also challenges them. I know there's a lot of words here, but in Matthew 13, verses 2 through 9, and the great multitudes were gathered together unto them, and he spake many things in parables, right? And this is the parable of the sower and the seed, right? And, and it's, it, we cannot miss it. Behold, a sower went forth to sow, and when he sowed, some seeds fell by the wayside, and the fowls came and devoured them up. Some fell upon stony places where they had not much earth and forthwith they sprung up because they had no deepness of earth. And when the sun was up, they were scorched because they had no root and withered away. And some fell among thorns and the thorns sprung up and choked them. But other fell into good ground and brought forth fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixtyfold, some thirtyfold. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. He literally is challenging the multitudes. He, like, he literally is like, one in four of you is going to make it. <laughs> now he's saying it, he's using illustrations to help communicate a principle. Some of you are going to get caught up in the issues of the world. Some of you are going to get attacked by Satan. You're not going to be able to withstand the attack. And you're going to fold like a, I don't know why they say a che- uh, like a cheap suit or a, like, I don't know. Are cheap suits easier to fold? I don't know. Are they? I don't know. I feel, I don't know the answer to that, but they're going to fold like a cheap suit. And, that there are some listening to him that won't be there the next time he talks. And I am, I am always surprised, and I shouldn't be surprised at this point, but I'm always surprised when we have an, a mission focus, when we have camp, when we have special things, the next year when somebody's not there that had been there the years before because the issues of life choked him out or... The sun came up and they didn't have deepness of root and boy, they were off. Jesus is literally challenging the multitude to say, look, y'all are going to have issues and you've got to decide, are you going to let those issues pull you away from me or not? 
serious talk. It's serious talk. He even, and, and notice, and this is kind of what I was building to, building to, he couldn't fully trust the, multi, the multitude, okay? The multitude. These are people who like the idea of Jesus. They like the concept of Jesus. They like what Jesus can give them, but they're not all in. The moment things get hard, I'm kind of out. And that's where, again, just being transparent with you, I had to, I had to years ago, I had to make this decision. Was I just good with him providing me salvation or was I in? And ultimately, I'm, I'm telling you, there's no better place to be than in. <laughs> look, look, he spake to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude, lest they, the multitude should throng him. Jesus was like a rock star. <laughs> and they could, he knew he couldn't trust them because they didn't respect who he was. Like, like rock stars get thronged by fans who don't think about what they're doing, right? In John 2, 22, or, uh, 23 and 24, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover and the feast day, many believed in his name. Uh, jumped down a little bit in the passage, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. He knew that the multitude of people weren't going to be, like he couldn't just do that. They weren't all in. In John 6, both in 15 and then later in 66 and 67, he perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him king. I think that's hilarious. I I mean, it's both hilarious and sad that people would take Jesus by force to make him king. And he was like, that's not how this is going to work. Like, you can't force me to be king. The problem is they wanted him to be the king, not their king, right? And then from that time, many of his disciples, now again, this is disciples, but many of his disciples even walked with him no more. And then Jesus said to the 12, will ye also go away? He knew he couldn't trust the multitude. He couldn't even trust all of his disciples, not just the 12, but the, they'd say it was about 150 or so uh, kind of folks that were not part of the 12, but that were kind of all in. He could, some of them left. Why? Because Jesus is like, you should, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Yet all the things Jesus had said had been consistent with the law. Yet all of a sudden right now they're like, okay, can I have the shoulder? Like, I, like what? I don't get it. This is too hard. As compared to saying, Lord, explain it because that would violate the law. And I don't, you're, you said you were come to fulfill the law. I, I don't get it. Explain, I'm, I'm ready to learn. I trust you. No, what the, some of the disciples and many of the multitude did was they're like, we're out. The things you're saying are too hard. I can't do that. So this brings us to first, the first lesson. So the multitude is being talked to. We need to view that through, the, through this passage or this passage through that lens. I know somebody who happens to have the initials of Michelle Nicole Dobson who thinks every message is directed at, we've had this, sorry, we've had this discussion. I'm on thin ice, but hey, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just doing this. There are times when, there are times when pastors or teachers will say, you need to be all in. And she'll, she'll like, afterwards she'll be like under some conviction and she'll say, I kind of feel like I was all in, but, but then they use the, this example and now I'm not sure I'm all in and, and, but I want to be all in. And I'm like, honey, that, what, that message, that line was not directed at you. Like you can't give any more right now. To give more on this topic or this, that would actually be out of balance. The Lord's not asking you to, to live at the church, Right. 
and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm in big trouble. Um, <laughs> it is kind of a weird compliment, believe I'm it or not. So, yeah, yeah no, I, I know a lot of us are that way. We, we assume that every time the pastor says or the teacher says something, that that means I have to apply it. And I'm here to tell you, conceptually, yes. But Jesus is talking to the multitudes. Will you consider the cost of discipleship? Will you consider what it means to be a true follower of me? Consider that, you know, we need to, and we're going to look at the examples he uses in that process. He's not saying it to the 12. They've made that decision. Okay. So for those of you in the room today who've made this decision, you know, spoiler alert, we'll get to in a minute. You got to keep making that decision. Okay. But if you've not made that decision, you need to go through this process and we'll walk you through the process of what it means, okay? Or what, uh, how, how to do it, okay? So lesson one, Jesus calls the question of both cost and your willingness. Cost and willingness. So I don't know if you remember Top Gun. Yep. Most of you in here are probably old enough to remember <laughs> Top Gun, the movie. Son, your ego is writing checks your body can't cash. Okay, some of you are wagging your head because you don't like the movie or because... But, but if you've seen the movie, you know, Tom Cruise, uh, Maverick, right? Yeah. Maverick is, is... Say it. Great movie. It is a good movie. And they keep postponing the second one because of the pandemic. I'm like, enough already. I know. They've said that like they said May, then November, then May, then November. Now they're back to May. So, but... But Tom Stinger Jordan puts his finger in Tom Cruise's proverbial chest. He might actually put it in his real chest because he's messing with the government's money in the plane. He's creating potentially international conflict. Your ego is writing checks that your body can't cash. You're not actually able to fulfill the, the commitment your ego or your mouth is making. Be careful, believer, because your spiritual ego may be writing checks that you're not actually willing to cash. There are times when we're like, yeah, Lord, I'm all in. And then the next thing you know, you got a car repair that you weren't planning for. The next thing you know, like you lose your job. And the Lord's like, are you still in? Do you still trust me? The next thing you know, you lose a loved one. The next thing you know, you, you know, the person that you, you, you consider to be a best friend turns their back on the Lord. Like, these are real stories. I can think back in real people situations, like some of them my own, where it's like all of a sudden, I'm not so sure I'm in all the, so quickly, you know? So, <clears throat> hating your family is, is tough. I love my family, yet I'm following the Lord. Do I have to hate them? Well, if you notice the kind of the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 10, <clears throat> parallel passage, he says, he that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. There is this concept. I literally, I mean, I don't have to see my, my brothers today or my kids or my parents and say, I hate you in Jesus' name. Like, 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 
That's not the way it works, right? I can love them, but the problem is when I choose to elevate them to the level of lordship. Like, that doesn't work. And I, and I literally need to love the Lord so much that my relationships around me seem like almost despised as a result. And am I going to choose my relationship over my family before I choose my relationship over the Lord? No. Like, I'm not going to allow it. Does that mean, okay, so let's get brass tacks for a second. I've got a conflict with my family schedule and a ministry schedule. Well, sometimes I'm going to choose the family thing. That's okay. Like, that doesn't mean I always have to choose the ministry thing. Sometimes the ministry thing, the right ministry thing, is actually spend time with your family. We do that every Christmas Eve. Like, Christmas Eve is kind of an important time for us. It's a time when we get together with family that we don't always see. I would argue that for us and our family, it's more important for that time than to be here for a service that we've already attended the previous Sunday. Other people may disagree, and that's okay. We can thumb wrestle over that. But that's not choosing my family over the Lord, right? Now, there are other times when my brothers might just want to get together to do something or work on something, but I need to choose ministry. And I'm not going to allow that, the time with family, to overcome time of ministry when it's appropriate. So Peter... Well, look at it, John 12 for a second. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that hateth in his, his life in this world, same, same word, hateth, shall keep it unto life eternal. That doesn't mean I despise my life to the point that I would end it. So I'm not supposed to despise my family to the point of ending the relationship. I'm supposed to hate my life in contrast to serving the Lord. Okay, it's that ends of the spectrum. Okay, Peter says, Lord, I will lay down my life for thy, for thy sake. And Jesus answered him, wilt thou? Verily I say unto thee, three, uh, you know, the cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. Like literally, yeah, really? You say it. Your, your spiritual ego is writing checks that your intestinal fortitude is not able to cash. <laughs> right? Like it didn't even take long. It didn't even take much other than like, I thought I saw him walking with Jesus. Nope. I don't know who you're talking about. Jesus who? Right? I mean, Peter. So it is a matter of perspective. And then the next is bearing, bearing the cross. Now, cross, there is literally no way around this. Cross is equal to death. He, this is not a byword or a catchphrase. Jesus is not just that throwing out, oh, you need to, you know, that's your cross to bear. I mean, I have people I work with that throw that out. Well, that's, you know, that, that, that person that's hard to manage, they're just your cross to bear. No, no, the cross meant death. Jesus was very clear. Contextually, practically, historically, doctrinally, any way you shake it, cross equal dying. And so do you remember our study at the gates of hell? A few, uh, at this point, maybe a couple months ago. Right When Jesus is talking to his disciples, he's actually away from the multitude at this point because he went where no good self-respecting Jew would go. A, it was distance. B, it was a place they wouldn't be caught dead. Right, Jesus is having a very intimate time with the men who are his disciples. So this, the disciple, the conversation of the disciples at Caesarea Philippi, it happens in Luke 9, Matthew 16, and Mark 8. 
And he said to them all, so the context is now the disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever shall lose his life, or will save his life, shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. Jesus is posing, in essence, the same question to men that have already made that decision. I can't tell you how many times I've thought, Lord, we've had this conversation. (laughs) You know my heart. And he's like, but what about now? What about now? Are you willing to give this thing up? Are you willing to give that thing up? And I've had, I've had some, some tough conversations with the Lord about things that I'm willing to give up or not willing to give up. And as I get more mature in the Lord, the list of things, and, and hear me out, the list of things that I'm willing to hold on above the Lord is growing smaller and smaller and smaller. And honestly, I'm not sure I'm totally there. Like, I'd like to think I'm there, but when the, when the rubber meets the road... When I'm Peter, like, yes, Lord, my spiritual ego is, is, is saying things. I'm not sure I actually, my intestinal fortitude can cash, but I think I'm there. But I still have to revisit this from time to time with the Lord. And I had to revisit it this week as I prepared this. Notice in Revelation 12, this is so, so awesome. And they overcame him, talking about the, the Antichrist and the beast, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony and they love not their lives unto death. This is bearing your cross. They they chose to not put their life ahead of following Christ even unto death. And that would be the ultimate. You know, I've heard the story about a a missionary. I've been meaning to to research it. I, I believe it to be true, but um, that not that long ago, a missionary family was executed. And by not that long ago, I mean modern, not like, you know, a hundred years ago, that they pulled the family, you know, they, they had them in a room and they were pulling the family out and they were going to, going to be and then subsequently did execute them one by one. And the father was pulled out first and he's like, it's okay, I'll see you in a couple minutes. Like, that's the level of confidence yeah. that the father had that even though they were all going to be executed, yeah. it's okay. I'll see you in a couple minutes. <laughs> they were faithful. Amen. They didn't love their life even unto death. Now, very few of us, I, I would actually argue maybe none of us, are ever going to have to face that. I mean, maybe we will. I don't know. Very few Christians in the world today as a matter of percentage, have to make that decision. But Christians do, in the world today, have to make that decision. There are, we read stories about them. There are people who, because of their faith, are executed or severely beaten to the point where they don't know if they're going to die. This is, this is a serious decision. Do you, if you trust him for your salvation, if you really trust him that he has covered your sin... Okay, we're going to just we're going to approach this logically for a second. If you've trusted him to cover your sin and give you eternity, why are you not able to trust him for everything up to that point? Up to the point of judgment. Up to the point of meeting him face to face. Now it's super son, your ego's writing checks that your body can't cash. I get it. It's a hard it's hard when the rubber meets the road. 
But if you think about it, if you really, and I'm not trying to talk you out of your salvation. I'm not trying to say if you're not willing to do that, you're not really saved. That's, that's lordship salvation and I'm not there. That's not my point. But if you really trust him, the logical conclusion is that he's got every aspect of your life, even up to the point of death, which again, most of us will never have to face, at least dying for our faith. So, so we got to count this cost relative to our family, relative to dying, yet there's this concept of numbering the people, counting the cost versus numbering the people. Now, maybe you don't know this phrase of numbering the people. It's a biblical concept. We're going to walk through it for a few minutes, but it's an important delineation because there are times when you have to count the cost and there are times when Christ actually, God actually tells us not to count, just to trust and run with it, okay? So, counting the cost versus numbering the people. Why was numbering the people bad? Well, it wasn't always bad, okay? We will see examples in just a moment where it was bad. In Numbers chapter 1, conveniently, at the beginning of the book of Numbers, <laughs> the people were told to be numbered, okay? What comes after chapter 1? Chapter 2. What comes in the book of Numbers? People being numbered, right? Take ye the sum of all... In verse 2, like he just, he was like, hey, good morning. Now number the people, <laughs> right? Take ye the sum of all the congregation of the children of Israel after their families by the house of their fathers with the number of their names, every male by their poles, from 20 years old and upward, all that are able to go forth to war in Israel. Thou and Aaron shall number them by their armies. So literally, God tells Moses and Aaron to number the people in a very specific place and time, okay? And subsequent recording in scripture. But, it, oh, ah. I knew that was going to happen. I still, I'm going for, okay, there we go. It can create doubt in what God is doing, though. It can create doubt. So if you're looking, <clears throat> well, I'm going to jump ahead of myself. 2 Samuel chapter 24. For the king said to Joab, so this is um, um, David, said to Joab, the cast, captain of the, whole, uh, the host which was with him, go now through all the tribes of Israel and number ye the people that I may know the number of the people. So now it's leader-initiated, not God-initiated. And why does the leader want to know? Joab said unto the king, Now, now the Lord God, thy God add unto the people as many soever as they be. Like, you don't really need to know how many there are. A hundredfold, and that the eyes of my Lord and my king may see it. But why doth my Lord the king delight in this thing of knowing how many people you have? Why do you need to know? Because if you need to know to substitute it for a thing called faith, that's a problem. That's a problem. There is a difference in figuring out if you have enough resources. Jesus is literally talking about this, building a tower, going to war, versus excluding the concept of faith. Notice again, when you rely on it instead of the provision of God in 1 Chronicles 21, 
and Satan, check this out, Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. And David said to Joab and the rulers of the people, go number Israel and bring the number of them to me that I may know it. And now it goes from just my flesh wants to know it to it's part of the spiritual battle. Satan is dangling a carrot in front of David saying, hey, trust in the flesh. Trust in the flesh. Count the people, see if you've got enough. Well, this seems like a contradiction to what Jesus said. He said, hey, what king doesn't consider how many people that he's got if he's going to make war, right? To determine if he needs to find conditions of treaty, of, of peace. Why are they different? Well, sometimes these, these orders to number or count the cost is God-driven. Sometimes it's self-driven because we want to rely on us. And that's, that's different. So let's look at a couple of examples. Lesson three, how to determine if you're able. How to determine if you're able. Okay. In both of these examples, it's at the beginning of your, at the top of the page, probably the other page, the other side at this point. And he said, for which of you intending to build a tower in verse 28, sitteth not down first and counteth the cost. And then in verse 31, or what king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first. In both of these examples, Jesus, and I don't think this is a, a, a coincidence, I don't think this is just words that he threw out, both examples you have to sit down and do some reflection and do some calculating, right? The Greek word here, kathizo, means to sit, and that's all it means. <laughs> and every time it's translated in the New Testament, it means sit, there's no other explanation other than sit down. Do not move for a period of time while you count or consulteth or consider the cost. Now, sitting allows reflection. We see sitting in Job chapter 2. It's a concept called sitting shiva uh, that, 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 that Jews even, even have today where they will go when someone is mourning a loss of death of a loved one, they will go and they will just sit with them. They won't say anything. They just sit with them. So they sat down, the counselors, Job's counselors, sat down with him upon the ground seven days and seven nights, and none spake a word unto him. A whole week they didn't talk. They weren't trying to prove their point for seven days. They just sat and considered Notice in Ezra 9.3, And when I heard this saying, I ripped my garment and my mantle and I plucked off the hair of my head and my beard and I sat down astonished or just astonished. I just sat. I just had to, I just had, I just needed a minute to take it in. I saw a meme. I'm getting old enough that in order to see better, I need to turn the radio down. I don't know if anybody else is there, but I find myself needing, I can't see what that street sign says and I turn the radio down. Now, there's a joke there, obviously, but there's also a, 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 a premise of truth is that I want to eliminate distraction is really what's happening, right? I want to eliminate distraction and focus. That's what the sitting, Jesus is saying, who, when they consider whether they're going to follow me, doesn't sit down first and count the cost. That's why we actually have a class called counting the cost, right? The cost of discipleship. 
And you should go and you should consider it. And it's going to be, what, three, four hours of going through it to consider whether or not, like, we're not saying, hey, hey, anybody spiritually moved right now? Maybe you had, you know, maybe your breakfast isn't sitting well with you and you're feeling, look, maybe that's the Holy Spirit. You should come up, sign up for discipleship right now. Like, we don't do it that way. We want you to consider Take time to reflect in Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 4. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Like counting the cost of discipleship is purposed. It's not emotional. It's purposed. Now, this is a little different than following Christ initially. Following Christ initially we see actually with the disciples, what did they do? They dropped their nets and followed him, right? So there are some things that you may have to give up when you get saved. Like there are certain relationships. I've counseled with people in this very church. They're like, I need to get saved, but I know that's going to cost me my girlfriend. Literally. But I got to do it. Like my girlfriend's not going to pay for my eternity, So I know it's going to cost me. I just feel it in my gut. We've had the conversations. I know this is going to cost me that that very important relationship. But Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon and and, uh, called Peter and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And he said unto them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And straightway they left their nets and followed him. In Matthew 4, 22, and immediately... Uh, they immediately left the ship and their father and followed him. There are times when people immediately need to respond to the moving of the Holy Spirit. But I would argue that this is not what Jesus is talking about because he wouldn't have said who considers, who doesn't sit down first, but to consider. There are times when there's the Holy Spirit is moving through the, through the preaching of the word that you at the, at the altar, you need to get up and you go forward and get things right with the Lord. You don't need to sit there and consider, well, should I really do this or should I really do that? That's not what I'm talking about here. There's a time for this. There's also a time for following a command, right? I made haste and delayed not to keep thy commandments. Like I don't have to, I I, I was saying this to somebody, when when somebody asked me to to preach, like my answer is going to be yes, unless I can't make it. Like unless I'm like divine, you know, providentially hindered, where my schedule doesn't allow me to be in that city or at that place at that time, I've been commanded by Jesus to preach the word. So like, I don't have to pray about it. I just have to be obedient. So there are times we need to be obedient. There's times we need to haste in following the Lord. But the cost of discipleship is not that. You need to sit down and consider it. So this is what I said. I was getting ahead of myself. Counting the cost We have done this all many times. And it has to do with the amount of gas that we have. Now, some of the more, the newer cars, I don't remember about when this came up, they tell you how much longer, based on your driving, how much longer you got. But we still do it because it's never quite right. It says I've got five miles left, but I'm sure I can make it six. Right, we do this reconcile reconciliation in our mind all the time. We compute, calculate, or reckon. We calculate, okay, 
I'll run to the store first and then I'll get gas because it's on the way home and I only have to do right turns or whatever the case may be, right? <laughs> you, know, you know what I mean? Maybe it's a little different, but you know what I mean. All right? Now, the gas example requires knowledge of how far you're planning to go. It's sitting almost on E. It's almost an eighth of a tank. Like, if I'm driving to Warnsburg, probably not chancing it. Because between here and Warnsburg, there's only a few gas stations. And it's kind of a long way between the gas stations, right? But if I'm maybe going to the airport, I might push it for a little while. Because I know I've got several gas stations between there. This is the concept of reconciliation or reconciling, right? Reckoning, right? Not reconciliation, but calculating or counting. This is, that, that's all this is. This is not does not require calculus, although calculus may help you avoid getting you know, stuck on the side of the road. But you just know how far you're going with the gas stations. How, well, I've, I've driven for days with my gas gauge at that level. I know this car has way more in it than that says, right? You know those things, right? Or the support if you run out of gas. Like, if, right, will mom come pick me up? Or am I close enough that I will be able to walk to or get support from another? Like, you take all those things into consideration when you're doing this calculus, when you're doing this mathematics, right? That's literally what Jesus is saying. Who doesn't reckon, doesn't calculate, doesn't figure all this out if they're going to build a building or a tower? You do it. You do it already, okay? Similarly, consulting... He uses the word consulting in the second example of the battle. It's to deliberate with yourself. So it's not the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other shoulder, but you're like, well, can I do it? Should I do it? Should I do it? What's I mean, I really don't have time to get gas. I have better time to get gas after, after work today. Like that's literally the debating with yourself, right? That's not, if you do that, you're not psychotic. Like we all do that, where we kind of debate with ourselves internally. Now notice, well, and then to take counsel or resolve, to reconcile it in your mind. Now notice in the example of the passage, he says, the king going to make war against another king sitteth not down first and consulteth whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000, Right? So this is a scene from a movie. This is the movie Troy. I don't necessarily recommend the movie. It's okay, I guess. I don't know how factually accurate it is, but I think I saw it on TV one time. But it, it was okay movie. So if you were standing here, it looks like maybe they've got more coming at you, right? But this is the exact same battle scene. It's a movie, so it's just a movie. From the other angle... From the other angle. There we go. <laughs> so now that previous picture was from over here looking this way. Well, now it doesn't look so bad. Like, I got some buddies. Yeah. I got a, a, a castle with archers on it. Like, I, I, okay, all of a sudden I feel a little better about this, right? So you have to take all those things into consideration, right? You have to... 
You have to, when you're considering whether you can meet him that cometh against you with 20,000, even though you only have 10,000, well, a castle's worth something. I mean, I would think maybe it's worth 10,000, <laughs> right? I don't know. I mean, I like my odds. If, I've only, if it's two to one, I like my odds being in that castle. Like if I can shoot archers, but if I don't have any archers, well, now we've got a different calculus, right? We've got different math. If I don't have archers and if they're coming at me with catapult, like, do you see the point? This is all the calculus, all the calculating that we do on whether or not we can serve the Lord or not. It has to do with the defenses. It even has to do with supplies. How long can I hold out? What is the impact to the people of the city? Do I need to find peace, right? All those things factor into our equation of determining whether we can follow the Lord. And the answer to all of it is he's worthy and he's got it covered. He's worthy. So yes, you should consider what will this mean to my son if I choose to do this? You should absolutely take that into consideration. But you should also know the Lord's got it. Doesn't mean we can be frivolous, but we can take confidence. So, hey, multitude, and I don't necessarily mean multitude, although if you feel that you're in the multitude, so be it. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. Do you have what it takes? Can you write that check? Right? The mil- a military, and I always feel like I mess this up. The military, the, the soldier... In the, for, the, for the government, for the U.S. government, has written a check up to and including the, pri- the cost of their life. Like, most soldiers don't die today. I've met a good number of soldiers that, like, do things that I think, that sounds a lot like a regular 9 to 5. Right, right, yeah. And I'm not demeaning it. But if things change... And the president says, hey, I'm calling up 10,000 people because of what's going on in the Ukraine. They got to go. So the Lord may never call you to that. He may never call you to go serve in X country, X scenario, where you could be beheaded for following the Lord. He might call you to go across the street or down the street or across town to fulfill the thing he's called you to do. I don't know. But hey, multitude, do you have what it takes? And Romans chapter 12 totally answers the question. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. It is only reasonable math for you to lay it all on the table. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the clarity. I believe the clarity of your word and the examples that you laid out. We are supposed to consider, but those things should never take the place of faith. So Lord, help us not to count the people, but help us, or number the people, but help us to count the cost and then come to the conclusion that you are worth it, that you are worth laying it all down, all of our resources, all of our uh, all of our uh, uh, sustenance that we would provide for ourselves, it's, it's worth laying down for you. We, we trust you for the decisions you're working on in our lives, and we just ask that you continue to use your Holy Spirit to guide us in truth and righteousness. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all have a great day in the Lord.